Welcome to the Finance for Resilience podcast brought to you by the Climate and Development Knowledge Network, or CDKN. If you're curious about policies, information, and solutions around climate change, you're in the right place. Listen in as we discuss, debate, and look at real-life practical changes that can be made for significant and lasting economic and environmental impact around the globe. The topic of this episode, Demystifying Adaptation Finance. Hi, I'm Kamlesh Pillay, and I'm the host for this podcast. I work as the climate finance thematic lead at CDKN at South South North, helping to shape the conversation and action around this fascinating topic. If this is your first time tuning into this podcast, welcome. We're glad to have you here. In this episode, our goal is to demystify the topic of adaptation finance, what it is, and why it's important to define. The adaptation finance gap is noted by UNEP as being appreciable, which means that the current funds available are not sufficient to meet the adaptation implementation needs. The question is, why is this so, and what are the solutions to bridge this financing gap? We've decided to ask some non-climate scientists what they think adaptation finance is. This is what they had to say. Maybe like a business uh, adaption finance. I don't know. It either could be finance that adapts a lot or a business called adaptive finance. Adaptation finance are the costs that are put forward to change something from its, from its existing state into a different form. I think that adaptation finance is probably allocations of funds uh, or distribution of funds to some sort of change. Off the cuff, I think of adaptation finance as being quite specific to climate change and it's around projects that are funded to help vulnerable communities or countries to, to handle the impacts of climate change. I don't know what it means, but I can try and understand by breaking the words apart. Adapt and finance. To me, it sounds like adapting your finance to your lifestyle. One thing is clear. This broad, ever-evolving topic is complex, and there's a lot of work to be done around informing people about the concept and the implications of this area. There's no universally accepted definition of adaptation finance. We can go on the IPCC 2014 synthesis uh, report where adaptation finance is really the finance that is used to finance the future impacts of climate change. So it's really forth looking uh, to kind of future climate scenarios. And then obviously the finance that's going to be needed to transition into that climate future. Let's illustrate this potentially tricky concept of adaptation finance with a practical example of implementation in the city of Venice. Picture Venice, the beautiful Italian city, famous for its unique waterways and interesting city structure. On November 4th, 1966, abnormally high tides, rain, and severe wind caused what was known as the Great Flood. Thousands of residents lost their homes and over 75% of businesses were seriously damaged. It was a devastating blow to the city and its people. Consequently, the city took action to prevent any future disasters. They initiated Project Moe's a series of physical barriers consisting of mobile gates to protect Venice against coastal flooding. 
Because of this investment, the city and surrounds have managed to save billions of dollars in avoided flood damages, not to mention protect its stunning architecture and lives and livelihoods of its citizens. A proactive approach trumps a reactive one every time. Granted, it took over 30 years from conception to construction, but the rewards are well worth the wait. In fact, this is often the case with adaptation finance. Financiers will focus on investment returns for a three to five year window, whereas the time frame for adaptation finance is usually long term. Joining me today to continue the conversation on adaptation finance is Catherine Bakos and Malango Mawowo. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Would each of you mind giving me a short introduction of your background? Hello, everyone. My name is Catherine Bakos, and I am Director of Climate Finance and Science at the Intech Center. Um, I come from Ontario, Canada, so probably a little bit cooler than some places uh, people may be listening to. For those of you unfamiliar with the Intech Center, we are an applied research center at the University of Waterloo uh, that helps homeowners, communities, governments, and businesses reduce risks associated with climate change and extreme weather events. So that's in relationship to flooding, fire, extreme heat, and under my personal domain of engaging institutional investors, so those who invest pension funds, to determine how physical climate risk can be incorporated into investment decision-making and ultimately how the performance of companies, stock price and returns can be affected by climate change. So it's an absolute pleasure to be with you all today. Great, and a pleasure to have you, Catherine. I'm Malango Muo, and I'm the director of Zeni Zeni Sustainable Finance. And uh, Zeni Zeni is a, a sustainable finance advisory firm. Thanks, Malango, and a pleasure to have you. Um, so maybe as a starting point for the conversation and you know, considering that the, the, the title of the podcast is Demystifying Adaptation Finance, I think a good starting point would be firstly to understand the importance of this area. Catherine, I can, I can pose this question to you first. Well, I think it's a great question, but I believe to really understand why adaptation finance is so important, we really first have to understand why adaptation itself is important and then why it needs financing. This is where I would say work from organizations like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change really comes into play, uh, specifically their 2014 synthesis report, which determined that global climate change in itself is effectively irreversible. So we can slow down the rate of change by transitioning to a greener global economy, in other words, mitigating against that change. But the manifestation of climate change as extreme weather, such as flooding, fire, extreme heat, that will continue to have a global scale impact on individuals, communities, governments, and companies, which will ultimately translate into impact on company share price, industry sector, and asset class performance. Even the communities in which these companies operate will experience impacts such as credit rating fluctuations. So, and this doesn't even include the human impact of mental health and physical health. So, that's kind of a long-winded answer to say why adaptation measures must be operationalized and to do that must be financed. Um, yeah, and, and I guess traditionally we've seen a kind of disparity between mitigation and adaptation. And I, I think we'll go into that you know, further on in the conversation. But before we get there, Malango, I can ask you to comment on, on the need for adaptation finance and feel free to lead on from Catherine's comments. 
Yes, um, as Catherine said, uh, it's critically important given um, that the impacts of climate change are being felt today and we have to adapt to those now and there will be more impacts coming in the future depending on the degree to which we mitigate overall um, climate change. And from a financial perspective, in terms of numbers, the Global Commission on Adaptation has estimated in terms of the um, costs of adaptation over a period between 2020 and 2030, they estimate those costs to be about $180 billion annually. So that's per year. So that's a huge amount. And that's those costs are needed to address adaptation across a whole range of areas, such as it making infrastructure resilient, new and, exist, and, and um, existing infrastructure, addressing agricultural production and making our ecosystems, particularly water resource ecosystems, more resilient. So it's not there's a significant requirement of financing to address this. Malanko, I think it feeds into the next part of the conversation, which is really about why it's difficult in comparison to mitigation finance. So um, before I before I pose the question um, to you, Catherine, I think what I'll start off with is just defining mitigation finance um, as as kind of contrasting the two to try and lead into this almost diagnosis of why there's a problem. So mitigation finance really deals with tangible emission reductions. So just to, to try and explain to the audience, maybe let's take an example of, of renewable energy. So, you know, solar panels or solar energy is a great example of this. And, you know, renewable energy is con- considered a mitigation finance option because the ultimate outcome is emission reductions or reduced CO2, um, which is something that would have occurred if it would be the traditional fossil fuel system. So if it was traditional energy produced by coal, for example, that would have yielded emissions uh, in the form of carbon dioxide equivalent. And mitigation, therefore, is quantified in terms of, of tons of carbon dioxide removed. And that is the kind of contrast between adaptation and mitigation, where adaptation deals more with future climate impacts as opposed to tangible emission reductions. So, Catherine, I can, I can now pose the question to you about why there's such a problem with adaptation as opposed to, to mitigation, and why do we see this problem translated in the finance space specifically? I believe if we're looking at why mitigation gets so much attention compared to adaptation, I believe that the conversation itself that surrounds the two tends to focus mostly on mitigation. You have governments, international agreements, such as the Paris Paris Accord, uh, various media sources. I would say 80%, and I think I'm being generous there, probably more than um, of the conversation regarding climate change uh, within political, financial, capital market worlds, consider climate change almost exclusively, as you were saying, from a perspective of a cost on carbon, a carbon tax, or mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. But we must take into consideration that there are multiple steps to solving the climate change equation. Mitigating through a carbon tax or beginning a transition, um, transitioning our industry is one. Investing in innovation for carbon capture and sequestration is another very important one, actually getting the carbon out of the air. And But we must also pay equal attention to adapting against climate change and extreme, the extreme weather risks that will continue to have increasing impacts 
physically and financially on a global scale. So adaptation is also key to that equation and must become a much more significant part of the conversation. So I'm very happy that we're having this conversation today. Just to tag on to that, Catherine, I think the aspect of tangibility is really important here for adaptation, right? It's, um, I think generally we've seen the skew towards mitigation because sometimes the climate impacts are seen to be, you know, in the future. And when I mean in the future, I mean in 20 or 30 years time. And I think what we're seeing, especially in the last five years, is that the climate impacts are becoming more apparent and more visible. And therefore, we're seeing a more heightened focus on adaptation because there's um, significant economic losses that are now visible. And I think that that has, has helped shift the conversation, at least in the policy context. But Malango, maybe I can, I can bring you in here to kind of understand why there's a problem with financing adaptation. Yes, I mean, I think, the as you, as you both mentioned, the historical focus has always been on mitigation. And I think that's because whenever the UN Convention on Climate Change was um, signed, that was about 30 years ago, it was thought that we can easily address it. We had many years to do it. And I remember once a quote from somebody working for WWF, actually, on the advocacy side, often said, the best form of adaptation is mitigation. So that used to be the focus. But I think now, as you say, that we have these impacts that we're being felt in, in many different ways, people realize we do need to address adaptation investments. But historically, because the focus hasn't been on adaptation, there's a lack of understanding um, of the, the mechanisms that cause, that allow you to understand how to measure the adaptation costs. I think it's a very complex process. And also adaptation is needed across, you could argue, every single sector of any particular country's um, economy. So it's economy-wide, uh, whereas mitigation in most countries only covers a few sectors, uh, energy, transport, and perhaps forest management, depending on where the country is. So it requires policymakers, the private sector, civil society to focus across an entire economy. That makes it very, very complex. And I think that makes it hard then for financiers who typically like to have the boundaries of what they're financing and why, and to understand exactly what the impacts of that financing would be, it makes it a little harder for them to grapple with. The one statement that you mentioned in there that really speaks to the heart of the issue is really this management of, of uncertainty in the future. I think one of the, the issues that I've typically experienced in, in my practitioner work is this um, almost making the case for adaptation, noting that some of the impacts are yet to be felt and, you know, also the, the economic costs associated with that. Um, and I think it's something that really makes it difficult for practitioners who are trying to, you know, um, almost demonstrate why adaptation is needed now rather than, you know, being focused on in 20 years time. Um, Catherine, maybe from, from a private sector point of view, noting some of your, some of your previous work, can I get an example of just how you've managed to create this message or communicate this message towards investors? Well, I think if you're comparing between the public and private sector, I think the best place to always start, and as we've been talking about, is the financial side. So what are the costs? Now, Malongo talked about global adaptation costs, but if we look at what the costs alone from the physical impact, so if I and the industry sector, that's very easy um, who can calculate that very easily is actually the property and casualty insurance sector. And so global 
in the past decade has been the costliest uh, decade due to natural disaster, uh, tallying approximately $3 trillion U.S. globally, which is $1.1 trillion higher than previous decades. Uh, from flooding alone, the United Nations actually projects that damages could be as high as $27 trillion per year by 2100. So if we're translating that into economic loss, that would account for a 3% drop in global GDP. Now, to clarify, these are insured losses. So if we take those amounts and multiply it by three to four times or even greater, depending on where you are in the world, you'll get uninsured losses, physical climate risks, as the costs of damage. Uh, this comes out of taxpayers' pockets and government budgets, specifically for budgets for hospitals, schools, and infrastructure development. So from a public sector perspective, that's why we need to focus on it. But the same can be said, and it must be acknowledged that the physical impacts of climate change will also have an, and potentially have already have an impact on the private sector. Specifically, companies within the private sector could suffer disruptions to the continuity of their operations. And this is how I interact more with institutional investors and in specific companies and industry sectors because it is the company's responsibility to disclose that risk and then invest in measures that will help protect against those risks. So I can give you a quick example that if you have an extreme weather event such as flooding uh, that truncates the supply chain, which subsequently impacts the long-term cash flows of the company, fiduciary duty, which is acting on behalf of another interested party, would require that this information be disclosed as it could affect the decision of an investor to buy, hold, sell stock in a company. So the private sector is also responsible. And by investing in these types of changes at company level, investors will begin allocating capital towards companies that have not only identified climate risk, but have implemented adaptation measures to protect against these impacts. So it's the companies themselves that will begin mobilizing adaptation finance, in my opinion. Catherine, you've touched on so two issues there that are really key, and it speaks again to the barriers. The first is this problem with tracking adaptation finance. And, you know, my question to you would be, or response to you would be, okay, so if I'm managing future climate risk, so that's just good business, at least from a private sector perspective. And I think it leads into this problem of tracking, because as a business, I am not going to tag you know, um, investing in a seawall as, you know, um, an adaptation measure. I'm just going to say it's going to protect my assets. So it's just a good business decision. And I'm not going to, you know, allocate it to that, um, that project category. And I think if you had to use that example and kind of scale it upwards, it's, it's the kind of underlying reason why we have such a problem with tracking adaptation finance is because Initiatives are sort of embedded in everyday operations and also, you know, coupled with the fact that, you know, organizations really, you know, ha may have limited understanding of adaptation. It causes this difficulty of really getting an accurate assessment of exactly what we're spending currently on adaptation. So I think, you know, to, to go back to Malanga, your point, there's, there's this dual problem. It's firstly quantifying the adaptation needs, the cost. Uh, the cost of implementation, 
And then there's also the problem of understanding exactly what we're spending currently. And, you know, if you put those two problems together, it becomes very difficult to firstly develop a financial model for a financier that can adequately prove your, your business case. Um, but I, I think what I want to go towards is just this perception of responsibility. I think, Catherine, you, you've spoken about, you know, healthcare and water and some of the more, um, you know, social good type of um, economic sectors. Malanga, I'll ask a very pointed question just about, you know, whose responsibility is it to undertake adaptation? Because we're all affected by climate, it's a, it's a joint risk. So it's, it's effectively everyone's responsibility. When I say everyone, I mean individuals, governments and business. But of course, uh, uh, governments play a very, very important role because they, they can take a, a broader view and, and have a different risk appetite, call it, to say to the business sector. But interestingly, because certain, in certain sectors, they, they are closer to seeing the impacts and feeling the impacts. And, and most of the impacts that are currently are felt through, through weather related events, um, such as flooding or drought. So, for example, businesses in the, in the agribusiness chain have already started making investments in recognizing, for example, um, one of the large brewers in the world, AB InBev for short, recognizes the importance of securing water. So adapt- making investments in water adaptation in the catchments where they grow hops, which is a very important crop for beer, for example. And they're already making investments in that sort of intervention because they have seen that that has an impact on on their supply chain. So a lot of businesses are beginning to see this. But when it comes to particularly public infrastructure, health and even, for example, energy, electricity, uh, we've seen in, in California, for example, that electricity supply has been interrupted by wildfires, which have been exacerbated by climate change. So there needs to be adaptation in that area. That is clearly in the domain of, I'd argue, a public sector response, even though perhaps the electricity companies themselves are private entities, because it requires a, a non-company specific response. It has to be a regional or, or localized response that governments are more able to respond to. So I, I do think that the responsibility is across the board and particularly in countries where the governments are not able, they don't have the capacity, whether financial or even um, human capacity to, to respond. That is when the private sector and, and individuals have to have to step up to the plate, as it were, and take on a role that perhaps governments that is traditionally seen in the in the, the government's domain. So in many developing countries, this is the case. And and that's where the private sector, I believe, needs to play a much, a much stronger role. One of the things that you touch on that that really is the almost the elephant in the room when it comes to adaptation of particular sectors is the issue of of cash flows and revenue streams from from adaptation projects. And I think it's the reason why there is this perception that has developed about the responsibility being more on the public side rather than the private side, even though I agree with you completely that it's definitely going to take a joint effort. And maybe, you know, there is a case that private sector is already adapting towards climate change, but they're not, as I said earlier, tagging it as um, adaptation. But I think there's this problem of, of revenue where there are certain sectors like disaster risk management, for example, building a seawall or um, implementing some kind of resiliency towards a climate hazard 
that is not going to generate cash flow or, or revenue. And in that sense, those types of projects or adaptation projects are going to continue probably to be the responsibility of, of public sector, at least at a broad level. I think at, at, at a localized scale, there is a possibility that a company who is exposed to a particular flood could take action. And that could be you know, one of, um, that could be an example of private sector adaptation. But typically, I think because of this issue of revenue streams, and this, I mean, goes back to our accounting systems about how we quantify vulnerability, um, you know, it, and, and the fact that we don't, uh, you know, making it very difficult for us to actually generate revenue around adaptation. And that really limits adaptation in the private sector context to sectors like agriculture and water. Um, where at least there is a possibility of generating revenue from enhanced crop yields, for example, or enhanced water security and, and the sale of water, for example. But you know, moving on, I, I, I don't want to d- dwell too much more on the barriers because I think one of the focus areas of the podcast is really to try and come up with, with solutions because I think this is a problem that I think has been acknowledged globally as being a real issue and and will continue to be. So for the next part of the podcast, I'd really like to focus on on what can we do. So maybe Catherine, I can ask just from your experience and your work um, that you've currently undertaken in in Canada, um, what kind of solutions are you seeing? And I'm speaking about the instrument context, like the financial instrument context, but also just generally in terms of the systems and, and measures and initiatives that are coming about. Of course. Uh, I think from a global perspective, at least, I would focus on some of the frameworks that are coming out. And and Malongo and, and you both really touched upon um, the, the need for information and that disclosure in a sense um, and the lack of information of what to disclose. So I think there are specific frameworks that are out there, specifically the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. The acronym is TCFD, the Global Reporting Initiative, to name a few. These are great places to start in catalyzing adaptation reform and encouraging assets to be allocated towards adaptation. Um, You can see with the TCFD, it allows for kind of widespread information. So investors, and this is more from an investor standpoint, investors understanding what the financial implications of climate change actually are, Um, the type of frameworks Uh, This type of framework, it emphasizes transparency. So allowing companies to say, do you know what, I want to be disclosing this risk, um, not because I don't have any risk, uh, but understanding that risk and, and being able to disclose it. Uh, And ultimately, this will hopefully lead investors to allocate capital towards companies, as I had said before, to those who have implemented measures to protect against these risks. Now, specifically in regards to my own research and what's happening in Canada, I believe these, these frameworks are a great place to start. But what I see is that there is no way to actually operationalize on it. So again, it's, well, let's disclose risk. Well, what Where's that information and what should I be disclosing and what is considered risk? And so in my specific uh, research with the Intact Center, what we've done is created a globally scalable framework, which can be applied across industry sectors. Now, this is based on recommendations from the TCFD. 
And this is a climate risk framework that prioritizes the top one to two means by which extreme weather. So if you're looking at flood, fire, extreme heat, and how that could negatively impact the operations of a company within a given industry sector, while simultaneously identifying actions that an investor should expect a company to take to mitigate against that risk. Now, you had mentioned instruments, and and there are, and we notice within the industry that there are a lot of instruments that are being created. So you could look at green bonds or derivatives, but one that I'm actually quite fascinated on, and and Kamalash, and you you spoke about it, but insurance. Uh, I think insurance is a great place to start because in its simplest form, it literally is written protection against risk. Um, Parametric insurance in particular agrees to make a payment once a triggering event, usually a catastrophic natural event, occurs. So insurance not only is very good at tallying the impacts of climate change as they manifest as extreme weather, um, again, flooding, fire, extreme heat, but insurance also assesses and communicates and signals risks while generating incentives for risk management. So as an example here in Canada, The greatest loss due to extreme weather is from flooding. So if a homeowner uh, incorporates measures around their home to protect against risk, they could actually be charged a lower premium. Now, if I extrapolate this and think further down the way, as risk management evolves, you can actually see another option in this regard manifesting, which would be if these measures are not implemented, the payout when a loss does occur would be lower. So now it's incentivizing those to actually adapt. Um, Ultimately, what we have here is insurance transferring the risk from the insurer to the insurer. Now, the European Commission even believes that that insurance is a great tool as it ensures that the financial damage does not turn into long-term economic damage, say if a house or a business is damaged and needs to be rebuilt or compensated. However, and I'm really going to emphasize this, do we want this just for our global society to have this damage and to rebuild the same as before? Um, I believe what we want is to build back, as they say, build back better. We want to incorporate resilience and adaptation into the system. We need resilient infrastructure, and Malongo had mentioned this before, resilient infrastructure. We need to maintain natural ecosystems and land cover to protect against the future impacts of climate change. Thanks, Catherine. And and I completely agree with you that insurance is probably the best financial instrument to demonstrate adaptation or elements thereof. Um, You know, it's future looking, it's risk focused, and it's almost planning for uncertainty, you know, or these kind of future impacts. And I think it demonstrates the adaptation case, especially with climate insurance products that are coming online. Um, But I'm glad you focused on the risk mitigation side, or at least the incentivizing of, of adaptation, because I think the one thing I'll clarify is that Insurance is a useful instrument at catalyzing adaptation, but one is focused on reactive, um, reactive financing. So, you know, waiting for a flood to happen and then financing the cost thereof, whereas adaptation is slightly different where we're focusing on proactive investment that is occurring before these uh, hazards occur. So there's just a slight nuance there, but I think your point is definitely taken about it demonstrating adaptation quite effectively. 
Malanga, I really want to focus on on your work experience and project experience uh, from a practitioner point of view, and just um, how uh, have you seen the, the adaptation finance landscape developing in terms of you know solutions and and initiatives that have allowed us to progress in catalyzing these flows for adaptation. What I'm going to speak about is not traditionally thought of as finance, but it is a significant part of the overall financing of any project or program, or, and that's the project preparations process. Uh, I always say that finance has, has many good and bad things about it, but one of the good things about it is that when finance is on the table, it can bring other people around the table very quickly because everything needs funding. And so using that as a lever early on in the project preparation stage, financiers can insist that research is carried out or data is gathered that is needed to make, say, a particular project more resilient. So from the very start, resilience is uh, one of the key goals in project design, for example. And in, in some of the work, I do quite a lot of work around water infrastructure, for example, and recently, there was um, a dam being built and designed um, in the country. And this is early stage, pre-feasibility, feasibility stage of the dam. And when a climate lens was applied to that to say, well, how do we make this dam more resilient? The climate data was not very specific in terms of giving a direction to say, well, there's likely to be more rain or less rain. It said it could be quite variable. So in the design, the engineers then had to consider this and say, well, how do we make this dam resilient? You don't want to overinvest because from an economic perspective, that is not a good use of money. So what they said is that the dam had to be able to cater for higher precipitation rates, but not at the moment. So the solution then was to um, design a dam wall um, that could be made higher should there be more, when I say precipitation, I should say rain, more rainfall. So it could gather more rain, but you didn't want to make that investment right up, but the wall was designed so that it could easily be extended. And that for me is those sorts of interventions, although I say it's not traditionally financed, but it's project preparation that has to be funded as well, that sort of research. And if that budget is put into, and this is all for new projects, obviously, but if that budget is for um, con- taking a climate lens is taken up front and included up front, then the outcomes will be much better. Because I think one of the key things about adaptation, well, the climate in general, is that the degrees of certainty are quite are quite wide in certain instances. There's some things that we know, um, that, so the I- IPCC research and uh, climate models, we, we, there's high degrees of certainty on certain impacts. But there's less in, in terms of uh, certainty for other sorts of impacts. So actually, a lot of adaptation finance needs to build adaptive capacity into whatever is happening, whatever the, the it's being focused on. And, and I do think finance needs to go, go towards that. It's not sexy. It doesn't project preparation is not something that people stand up and say, Oh, look how exciting. I've given um, X million dollars to project preparation, but I think it's really, really critical. And even the process of arriving at the, the decision of the dam I was speaking about gives a methodology to gather research around other different areas when you try to take a climate lens. Malanga, I think this integration of climate risk and resilience into decision-making paradigms is so critical. And I understand, you know, it may not be, you know, a specific insur- um, you know, insurance product or, you know, financial instrument, but really it's speaking to governance which is probably the most important part in, in, in the financial process. We're coming to the end of our time together. And I think 
to be proactive um, about uh, some of, you know, about the area and where we go to in this area. I'd like to pose one last question to both of you. And that really relates to just maybe one recommendation that you, and, and I know one, uh, one recommendation is a tall ask, considering that there could be many, um, around what do you think needs to be done differently in this space? Um, Catherine, I'll start with you. Well, I think it's actually going off of what Malongo said, and that based on the industry sectors and the examples that she gave, it's the acquisition of knowledge. And so if it's an industry sector that's being impacted, now again, if we're talking about physical climate risk, based on geographic range, those industry sectors are going to be impacted differently depending on where in the world they're located. But I think it's industry sectors that can mobilize and to acquire information and where are we going to be impacted. Um, And by acquiring that knowledge and understanding that and then dispersing that information, I believe will be very powerful so that companies within those sectors can begin to adapt and investors, as I've said a few times throughout this podcast, that we can allocate capital towards the companies that are um, implementing those adaptation measures. So I think it's almost a dominoes effect beginning with the industry sectors and the companies to understand what the risks are and then implementing change from there to begin adapting. Um, I believe that would be a great place to start. I fully agree with what Catherine said about the information side. And for me, I think one of the key areas where this could make a, worse, a difference could be made is around financial regulators taking, allowing the sector to take a pre-competitive approach to the issue and, the, and creating incentives from a regulatory perspective. So it affects everyone equally in the sector. When I say everyone, I mean all the different financial institutions they regulate. To, to be able to respond more effectively, because as you mentioned before, the revenue generation ability of some projects isn't there. So there has to be a, a, a financial incentive somewhere. And I think regulators can do this very easily. And it's not normally their domain, but some regulators are looking at this. And I do think it would make a, a significant difference almost immediately. And I think to end, I'll, I'll also pose a recommendation. And that's really that I think one of the things that we're missing is um, comprehensive guidance about the initiatives specifically needed for adaptation and resilience. And because of this issue that everything is quite localized or you know, is very uh, site-specific, we run into this problem that the initiatives are very different you know, wherever you go. What is, what is being uh, implemented in Canada is very different to what is needed in South Africa and Zambia and the like. And I think that causes a real problem for, you know, coming up with, with initiatives that can be implemented um, uh, at scale, you know, or without taking local context into consideration. And I think moving towards a future where we have greater knowledge, as, as you've mentioned, Catherine, that really collates all of the experiences that we've managed to implement currently and then obviously investing further research into the questions that we are not asking yet and, and getting answers to those questions, I think is going to be really important in the future. Um, so lastly, I'd just like to thank both of you for, for joining me today. I think it's been an amazing discussion and I hope our listeners have managed to, to gain some insight, at least a starting point for insight on the area. 
In summary, we started off by discussing why adaptation finance is important, noting the future climate impacts which are likely to be exacerbated under future climate scenarios. We thereafter focused on some of the barriers which included definitional issues, tangibility of adaptation benefits, revenue streams from adaptation and resilience implementation, and the difficulty in making the case for adaptation. Lastly, it is acknowledged that there are initiatives that are assisting us in integrating adaptation into financial processes, such as UNPRI, GRI, and TCFD. However, governance and political buy-in perhaps remain the most crucial factors in determining how we finance adaptation comprehensively at scale. Thank you for joining us for this episode in Unlocking Climate Adaptation. We hope you feel empowered and able to create a culture of resilience in your world. Join us again as we continue to explore climate and development challenges within and across our borders. If you would like to find out more, please visit cdkn.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at CDKN Network or at South South North. Make sure to check out our show notes of this podcast for more info.